Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life, for your presence with us, particularly the gift of yourself in Mass this morning. Um, how good you are um, to offer yourself. Um, you call us to holiness, all of us. Um, ask us to see our bodies as temples, um, to take care of ourselves, um, to make um, to make us worthy to hold you and, um, and to understand ourselves as being a part of a larger body, um, um, our church, visible and invisible. Um, thank you for all of this. We ask a special blessing on um, uh, Madison. Um, is there any news on her? Do you know? Watch over her, give her a special protection. Um, um, let really good parents come forward um, and pick up what um, Tracy's begun. Um, help keep her spirits up, her hope up. Um, lots of people want children today. Help her find um, a good couple. We ask a special blessing on Lynn and Jesse. Watch over him. Um, um, for all of these people, help them to find in their struggles some place in your cross, knowing um, that it's um, through your cross that we grow closer to you, separate ourselves from sin, and grow closer to you um, in love to become more like you. Um, help us to bring you to all that we do, particularly in our families and with each other. I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing. Um, let this work be fruitful in some ways. Um, help us um, to make use of it in, in um, St. Francis's mission. Um, you ask us to take care of the poor. Um, um, I believe by that it's not just poor people, it's um, people who are without you, um, who are impoverished because they don't know you. What a great poverty. Help us to fill that void in people's lives by bringing you to them. Um, we are glad to have this time together. Watch over us. I ask a special blessing on Bob. Um, let his heart be quiet. Um, um, let his body quiet and heal. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, a couple of a couple of things tonight. We're, we are going to do Wordsworth. So if you pull out the Wordsworth poem um, for the, you should have "Surprised by Joy." I think it's the first poem. And um, there's a couple of other things. You you should have um, a a little. I think it's a two-page set on the Gams. You have the Gams with you. Does everybody have that? Did that get passed out, Doc? The Gams? Well, some of some of them purple and some of them are white. We, we have to take we have to take what the printer gives us. So. And I think that's it. Except in a few minutes. Um, 
in a few minutes, I'm going to hand around a packet. And let me just explain something here, because this is this gets complicated, complicated. Because of last week and the question that I raised about Moby Dick and the differences between a, um, a Protestant and a Catholic culture and, and whether one of the reasons we see this decline in New England is because of the act, absence of the sacred, what I call the sacred. I hadn't intend asking that question, but it, it seemed to me hard not to ask once I got back to Melville, and particularly in this context in our group. So, And last week we spoke a little bit about it, and the question of communion came up. And um, I, I want to clarify something tonight. I'm going to take a few minutes with it in a minute. Um, but what I did was put together a packet. And in this packet, I've got a couple of notes to all of you. It says, Catechism on Emergent Occasions. I love that title. Catechism. The Emergent Occasions is from Dunn, by the way. It's a, it's a piece that Dunn, John Dunn wrote in which he has that famous praise, No Man is an Island. I love that. Um, anyway, it, it came out of our work together, and I didn't want to gloss over it because to me it's too important, and I think it is for you, so I want to come back to it. But on this packet that I'm going to send around, I've got a, a note to all of you, <clears throat> these opening notes, called Catechism on Emergent Occasions, in which I address some of these concerns that were raised when we were talking about the Melville's critique of Christianity and of what, I'm, what I think we can call, in a way that's faithful to the text, a failed Christianity in America, what's wrong. Um, to take a look at that in light of my question is, is there, we don't see the sacred there. What we see is a moral code and it's getting weaker and weaker. And I, I, when we come back to this at the very end, I think it's gonna make more sense because when, when Ishmael survives the wreck at the end, we're, we will have experienced extraordinary things all along. You all know that now from the reading. There are mythic, supernatural, um, marvelous things going on all the time. Either people are being superstitious and they're passing on superstitious stories that don't square with science, or there is some relationship between science and spiritual matters that Melville is, is asking us to see and I think reconcile. So one of the great problems we face in Moby Dick is trying to bring together these two ways of reading the world. Scientific, philosophic, what we might call rational, and whatever we're gonna call the other, mythic, religious. I put together this packet and, um, and recommended some books on this question that go to the nature of Christianity, um, what it's doing, and particularly the place of the sacraments. So on these opening letters, you'll see in the, in the one that has two pages, if you turn to the back of it, you, you don't have it yet. You don't, I, you don't have it. Oh, you do. Oh, oh, oh. My wife is always two steps ahead of me, always. Um, Women are like that. I know they are. When we, <laughs> they are. <laughs> Marcy, when we get to Faulkner, Sorry, I can't help but tell these things. When we get to Faulkner in one of the opening, in fact, I think it's the opening story called Was, 
It, it takes place when Isaac, who is the hero of this, this is the Ike story, remember I told you. Go down Moses, the Isla, or the Ishmael story, and go down, or, Moby Dick is the Ishmael story. Go down Moses is the Isaac story. So the two of them are two of the greatest works that speak to this religious character of America. In Faulkner's work, in the opening story, Ike isn't born yet. And we're going to see that he's, he's going to come out of this very strange relationship that's developing this story between Safanzaba and, and, um, and what will be Ike's father. Um, it, it begins with um, one of the plantation owners chasing his slave because his slave has run away to make love to a slave woman on another plantation. And when they go to get there, he has this man, the slave owner, I mean, this, yeah, the slave owner, has to deal with Safanzava, who's got a real crush on this guy. And what we discover, the, um, the, um, one of the characters who's young then is wondering what's going on, and one of the slaves comes to him, it's, I think it's the slave they're searching for, and he says to the young boy, if he, if he wants to get something done, let the women do it. <laughs> and you have to wait to see what happens because Safanzov has got this all worked out. So all these chases, the, the man for the slave, the plantation owner, and Safanzov trying to get her hooks in him. It's a, it's a funny story, but that line is memorable. If he wants to get something done, let the women do it. It's, it's true. It's, anyway, it's a funny, funny story. You'll enjoy it when we get there. Um, if, you look, if you look at these two pages that, that you have now, you'll see that on, the, on page three of the second, I've, I've recommended some works and, and um, two sites online. One of them, I'm sure you all know, Wikipedia, um, and I, I'm encouraging you to go back and look at the Tractarian movement in England, if, if none of you know about it, because it's really important, because in some ways what happened in England is happening with us, um, but in a very different way, because the, the reform that came out of England originated in the universities in Oxford. It was the professional men, educated men, who were concerned about the laxity in the Protestant church, the broad church in England at that time, and met together to write these tracts to try to re-inspire their church because it had become too liberal, too secular. So the parallel with us, I mean, should be obvious. What happened in that Tractarian movement is that many of the men who got involved in it, once they began to search into their past, discovered that the kinds of reforms that they wanted to carry out had were already a part actively in the Catholic Church, and it led to their conversions. John Henry Newman is one of them, Gerard Manley Hopkins, whom you know now. I mean, we've, we've read his poetry a number of times. And a number of other really important figures. So one of the sites that I would recommend is the, uh, the Wikipedia. Just go look at the Tractarian movement. The other is this site called New Advent. Um, I've given it here so you'll see it. It's, it's, it's um, Catholic, and it's very thorough in, in its presentation on issues, and it tends to be historically thorough, exhaustive. 
So if you look up a if you look up a subject, you'll find that once you go into it, it won't just give you a simple definition, although it'll give you that, it'll also give you a history. So you understand this thing, whatever it is you're looking up, in a larger context. Um, so I would I would recommend that, and then um, and then I put together some other things. You'll see you'll see the items on that very first page: a timeline for Jesus, the sacraments, early church heresies, study guide on Calvin. It's a little study guide on Calvin. Suzanne and I got involved with a group called Angelicum. It's a it's a homeschool program ages ago. They asked us to do the a study guide on the great books. So we, we've done a study guide on the great books from the pre-Socratics and Homer to Einstein. They're all there. Um, the Calvin study guide here um, was one of those study guides. And there's a study guide on St. Thomas. Now, I really want you all to hear this very closely because I know you're preoccupied. Um, I'm gonna pass around this packet with all of these things. Um, and a, and a sign-up sheet indicating to indicate whether you want this packet or not. Um, there's a lot here. The, the St. Thomas study guide is 51 pages. It's a pretty, I think it's a, I think it's a really good study guide, but, but it's 51 pages. It doesn't serve the purposes of our class. They're not intended for that. I'm, I'm putting them together here for any of you who's interested in and looking at the nature of our church more closely to understand some things. When I started this, this class, I don't like that word, when, when I started this work with you all that we've been doing together, I didn't do it with an explicit catechetical aim in mind. It, it was literary because I really believe, and you know that, particularly those of you who've been with me from the beginning, it was to, to learn to see Christ more clearly, more immediately, in our, in our concrete, immediate world. That was it. But periodically, when we, when we were doing Dante, and most especially now when we're doing um, Moby Dick, questions about the nature of our faith have come up that have made it clear to me what, what catechetical responsibilities I have to everybody in this group, because it's a Catholic group and we're in the church. It's a serious responsibility for me. So I didn't think about doing it um, until Dante came up and then. I mean, it's been there always behind my mind anyway. I mean, those of you who've been here know that. I've been speaking to Catholic things from the beginning. There are several, Pro <laughs> there are several Protestants in the Friday group who've been here from the beginning. And I'd said on Friday morning, I cannot, I'm being on, really honest, I cannot tell you the pride I take in those people, the courage to be here to have to have heard me set the two churches against each other to the disadvantage of the Protestant world. They love the course, I'm glad they're here. Um, it, I just take it, think it takes a lot of courage uh, to do that. Um, anyway, I've raised these questions and I feel um, I'm a serious responsibility for them. So I wanted to take a few minutes tonight to go back to something that we, we spoke to last night, Mar Marcy and I talked afterward, and I promised that I would say something to that effect, but before I do, I've got to, I've got to say this. Um, I, I want to make clear um, something I thought I had made clear before, but maybe not. I want to make clear what's at issue with this question of the sacred, and particularly communion. Because I, it seems to me it, 
if you're not aware of what's at issue here, you could, you could make serious mistakes in what you're understanding by the word communion. So I want to take a few minutes with that because this whole question of the sacred and what I posed a couple of weeks ago and I asked is, can a culture um, guard itself against declining into a moral code, a Christian culture? Can it guard itself against any ten because of our fall, any tendencies in our fall that would encourage us to move away from it, decline into a moral code? My answer to that was no. I mean, when I thought about it, I mean, I'm going to leave that question for you. Um, it's a serious question to me whether any Christian culture can survive its beliefs without the sacred, obviously. But exactly what that means is another question. So I wanted to take a few minutes tonight to, to try to respond to it. And I hope you understand the risk involved here and the, either the daring or the foolishness on my part. I'm not a catechist. Um, but I've spoken as boldly as I could right from the beginning about Christ and every work we've done with the Iliad or, or Gerard Manley Hopkins poetry. Or, so now I've got to come out. This is my coming out. Um, I'm not sure what's going to come of this and I wouldn't be surprised if Father called me in for a talk next week. So. <laughs> Take, here, here's the packet. Take a look at this packet. There's a couple of them. And if you're interested in the packet, sign your name up. Go down below, leave some space. Um, some people signed up for it in the morning class, the Friday. If you want the packet, sign up. I, I'm going to ask for something like $15 or $20. It's a huge packet. The St. Thomas itself is 51 pages. Here's, and here's, here's my caution. Don't take this unless you're serious about it. Because it, it, it's, it doesn't bear on our work. I mean, indirectly it does, but it doesn't bear directly to what we're doing. This goes to essential catechetical questions of our faith. My assumption is that you all know this. But more and more, it's a question of my, my whether you do. I, I, can't, I can't answer that. I want to take a few minutes tonight to throw this stuff out at you because of its relevance to the questions that I asked last week. So don't take this unless you're serious, because the, the bulk of this is heresies. The, the two packets, there's a small one on, there's, remember there's a study guide on Calvin, there's a study guide on Luther, there's a study guide on St. Thomas. They're modern, St. Thomas isn't, but Thomas is at the center of our church. I think Marcy and I are probably the, I don't know that there's anybody in this class except Marcy and me who thinks of St. Thomas, um, I think the way we do. Um, the, the questions that I'm concerned about are dealt with in the packets on heresies because they help clarify what's at issue in our faith and if we don't understand them I'm not sure that we really can appreciate what we're doing with the sacrament. So I'm, I'm not urging you to look at these, I'm not pushing them on you, I'm just putting them out. If you're interested, indicate and we will print them out because it's a good bulk of printing and I don't want to print um, more copies than we need and, and, and have them wasted. There's just so much here. These are personal things that I've had 
I mean, I've got a ton of stuff at home that, that's just on my computer that I've used over the course of my teaching. I just gathered some things together in an effort to try to, to look at the questions that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, okay? So, I don't want to put these, I don't want to put my files on the air. I don't want them out. If we bring you a thumb drive. <laughs> Let's just leave it, if you want to take it in paper and if you don't, leave it. It's not a... Um, Yes. These are all part of the study guide. Is that? That's the packet. Okay. That's the list. That's the packet. Okay. Here, can I have that, Bob? Just to clarify. Sure. Yeah. If you all look, there's two 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 sets called Catechism on Emergent Occasions. One of them is a one page, single page. At the bottom of that page, it's got a list of the of the pieces that form the packet. Catechism, Jesus timeline. Yep. The sacraments, early church heresies, origins, Protestant, important heresies, study guide and count Lutheranism, study guide yes. in St. Thomas. That's just a list of what's in the packet. And by the way, if you just want one thing, if you if you want the let's say the study guide on St. Thomas, or you want the heresies, indicate that. And we'll just print that off so we don't print off things that you're not interested in. Remember, my concern here, I mean, if I were to urge you to do anything, it would be to get these pieces on the heresies, because I'm not sure that you're aware of them or even what they mean. Okay? Okay. Let me take a minute. Right now. I have some more on. Let me get directly to this. Oh, let's see. A heresy. It's been so long since I've looked at the wood that I can't remember. But as I recall it, it's um, a doctrine, a way of looking at things that flies in the face of what is, is thought to be an established truth. So to try to make this clear, I, I'm going to try to be as careful as I can tonight. Really careful. A Catholic would be looked at I want everybody to take this seriously because I tried to be as general as I could with that definition for, for reasons that you'll see in a minute. Um, a Catholic would be a heretic to a world given to secular ends. So if you grew up in a democracy who conceived of itself totally in secular terms, like our own, you'd be seen as an outsider. Okay? I want to be as clear because because the term heresy means that we it's it's an old-fashioned term you know that it really took its meaning from the heresies within our church 
But I want to really be clear on this. A Catholic is a heretic according to the secular world because he flies in the face of all of its aims. Traditionally, historically, the word applies to the Catholic religion itself and those beliefs which fly in the face of its revealed truths. So from our perspective, heresies are those beliefs which contradict the basic teachings of our truth. Okay? But I want, to, I, want, I want to put that as relative as I can, set it in two different contexts, so you're flexible enough in your own thinking to think about it that way. Um, all, all the early heresies all had to do with Christ's nature. Bob, how am I doing as I'm relating this to Moby Dick? Who said that? I Good. I believe that. If you're a two-dot person, like I say, you're, 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 one of them is on you are, the you are, you are a woman of faith. <laughs> I'm glad for your help. Um, um, so, all of, the, all of the early church heresies had to do with Christ's nature. If you look at this packet, you'll see there's a number. I'm just going to mention a couple of them. I, I don't have the packet in front of me, and I really want you to look at it. Suzanne's going to come back with some others in a minute, but so I don't have the list in front of me. I'm going to mention a couple in a minute and look at it. Every one of them had to do with Christ's nature. There were, and most of them came from within the church, from believers, from priests, bishops. Um, these people were um, absolutely sincere in their faith. You've got to see that. These were not violent, arrogant men. I mean, there's some arrogance, but it wasn't as if they were intentionally trying to undermine the church. They had strong conviction at a time when the doctrines of the church were still getting clarified. People were still struggling to understand, just like the disciples at the time of Christ. So, one of the major heresies came from a man named Arius, what's known as the Arian heresy. It's one of the mo most important heresies the church has ever confronted. Another one was Sabellian, or Sabellius. Sabellius, from which the Sabellian heresy St. Thomas in Contra Gentiles, which is an extraordinary work, just an extraordinary work. You've got that too? I have all of you. God. All, everything I, hope, I hope, I hope, I'm saying this really genuinely, Marcy. I hope you read the third and fourth books. They're just extraordinary, just extraordinary. Yes, I've got those. Um, two of the most important heresies were the Arian heresy and the Sabellian heresy. Um, and, the, and I'm going to make this claim right now. I don't know of a heresy, an important one, that's listed on this packet that I've given you that isn't in some way alive today. Let me just say that. Diffuse, probably not recognized, but it's there. Okay, and I'll hope to show why in a minute. Arius believed that, um, now here's, here's what's at stake here. I don't know how to do this, sorry. Because I've never done this before. God. I am so out of my depths.
according to our understanding of the Bible, passed on from the founding of the church with Christ. And remember, according to our church, there's only one founder, one unity. There can, Christ is not divided. He is not divisible. He is, he is love united in itself. His truth is united. It can't be broken up and fragmented. Um, according to the tradition and our understanding of Scripture, um, the Father conceived of himself that conception of himself is his son. I've, I've gone through this before already. And I'm trusting you all think, you know, I'm trying to make this a sorry, I'm going to struggle with it. You all have written essays. Yeah? You know that when you write an essay, you get an idea, right? It's in your head. When you get that idea, is it already written out, articulated word by word? It is not. It's almost as if an angelic form, an intuition, comes, a light, yeah? That's, that call it the idea, call it the Father, the idea. Until it's incarnated, you won't really know that idea. And I know you all know that. You start writing to realize it, and at some point you go, no, that's not quite what I meant. If you're like me, God, <laughs> if I showed you the chapter that I'm working on in this book right now, you'd see nothing but messes. I mean, it's just editing that, that's, that actually shows a sin, but um, you, you won't know that idea until it's fleshed out. That is, you won't know it until it is incarnated, given flesh a body. And you won't know how well it is unless you know the power of it, whether you said it the right way. I know you all know this, right? Because sometimes you'll struggle with your origin and you say, that's not quite it. And if you're struggling, you know that sometimes you'll be able to do it in such a way that you'll go, I've hit it. That's it. And the power of it will be expressed. So in that act is um, a reenactment of the Trinity, the idea, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Okay? Is that clear enough? If you look at it a little bit more abstractly, I've described it this way. When the Father, can, the Father's a person, he's not a thing. This is not it. Our tendency is always to materialize concepts. We always materialize, we put a face on God or a, it's like a cup. Something that's limited. Our understanding of God, that he's infinite. He's being itself. Put a face on that. We tend to materialize things. The Father is a person. If he's a person and he has a concept of himself, he conceives of himself, how can that be anything but a person? Yeah? And if there's a love between the two of them, how can that be anything but a person? So in the very nature of Godhead is a trinity. One nature, one nature, they're all divine. One nature, three persons. Okay, am I losing anybody? Okay. So, the Jews don't believe this. The Islam don't. If you've read the, if you've read the Koran, you know that the, that the Islamic, the Mohammedans, are outraged, outraged, at the thought that God has a companion. A Christian, a Catholic, should be comfortable with that because, according to our understanding, Godhead by, by very nature is communal. It's one of the reasons we look at the Protestant world as heretical. 
that they, that they give too much emphasis to a private determination of things, that you can make the Bible whatever you want. It's an isolated individual art, art being the arbiter of whatever means. The very nature of Godhead, according to us, is communal. There's a trinity of person. There's an intimacy. If that's true, every one of us as Catholics was made, every, no, pardon, any person who was made, Catholic or not, was made to love not to be isolated, separated, alone. He was made to love and be loved because that's the nature of the Trinity. We were made in God's image. Okay? Am I going? Am I, is everybody with me? I'm just, I'm trying to go back. I'm trying to go back to starting points. So our belief in our God is Trinitarian. Yeah? Now, Plato would have said, Look, eternal things, this is where it gets really murky. Plato would have said eternal things are unchanging. Catholics believe eternal things are unchanging. Yeah, you don't change. God's not going to change. Can he become less than he is or worse than he is or better than he is? No. Then how can it be, this is where it gets really sticky, how can it be that one of the persons of the Trinity emptied himself and became a man? That's the great, great paradox at the center of our faith. And that, by the way, that's why it's a matter of faith, yeah? Try to get reason around that and explain it. If you try to base your faith on reason and somebody can start poking holes in your reason, what happens to your faith? Gone. These are mysteries that we accept on faith. If we try to make them dependent on our reason, they're gone, okay? So these are the mysteries. The sun, in order to, this is the, this is at the, by the way, this was at the center, God, I'm so far afield from Wales. <laughs> this was at the center of Dante. In the seventh canto in the Paradiso, if those of you who are here remember it, because it was that exposition of the fall, what, why God did it. Man fell from God by disobeying him. We sinned against God. Since our sin was against God, how could a man atone for it because it was a sin against an infinite figure? What man could? No man could. We can't satisfy that sin. We can't make justice of it. There's nothing we could do, right, to restore justice, to restore our place. For that to happen, a God had to come down. I hope that's clear. I mean, this is all very, this is the center of our faith. Save. Something greater than a, a human can give, right? Yeah. The, the sin was too great for him to atone for. Yeah. Can you just pass those out, Doc? Or these? The, are these the guides? Here's some packets. Just. I know. Just take a look at, and if you don't want them. Give them back to Suzanne, and if you do, um, you can pay tonight or pay it another time. Just don't get that. Okay. Can I have your attention? If you can I get you all back here? I want to get to a whale story. Although this is a hell of a whale story right now. Everybody with me so far? Can you say that one more time? Say what? That 
If our original sin was against God, can, I, can, we, can we get that together? If our original sin was against God, justice means getting what's due. Um, if God is the source of all law, all, all, any notions of justice go back to him. We have to be just in what we do. That's in our nature. It's in the very nature of our relationship with him. Um, love by itself won't do it. Christ came to fulfill the law. There's a law that's been violated. We, can you guys hold off on that? Can you just... Um, if our sin was against God, because he's infinite and we're finite, we're limited, there's nothing that we could ever do to atone for that sin. Okay. That was, that was Canto 7 in the Paradiso. Okay. And remember he said only an infinite being could atone for it, who could give satisfaction for it. So either, and here's the interesting thing, either we would end up being damned forever, or God would have to save us. Could he save the, the devils? No, because the devils chose to refuse him, to deny him. Humans were tricked. Eve was deceived. And Adam made Eve more important than obedience to God, and he sinned, which in some ways was graver, because he wasn't tricked. Eve was. Adam gave in. So the angels are irremediable. They, can't, they cannot be saved, or those that rebelled. Humans can. Christ came down to save us. That's the center of our theology. Okay. Now here's the here's the problem. The, the question was, what's his nature, and what did it mean that God entered his own creation to take on our form? The very person who was outside of creation, transcendent, entered into it and became one with it. Now. Some of the early heresies, um, and if you read these, if you read the packet on the heresies, you'll see why. You'll see their reasons. Arius said, he took some passages in the Bible. This is what's really interesting. All these men were readers of the Bible. They didn't come to these things, Lucy. They were good readers. They came to them having made mistakes in the way they read Scripture. People left to themselves reading Scripture often make errors. I mean, this is God's Word. It's not ours. This is God revealing him. So there's lots of things that are beyond or difficult for us to know. That's why this tradition is so important. We help each other. Arius was a good reader of the Bible. He finds passages in the Bible, we can all find them, that raise questions about God, Christ's nature. And some of them raise questions about whether he wasn't just human. Arius maintained that Christ was human, that he was a special creation, but he was created in time. He would, not the Son, okay? Um, the Jehovah Witnesses still believe this today. When they come to the door, I mean, I always invite them, I want to have a talk with you. I mean, I'm just, I'm forever, well, I, I, no, I... Well, I they came to the wrong door. No, well, actually, actually, they've stopped coming. I, I mean, I, I so admire those people because they are so dedicated. Who walks the streets? God, I mean, how can you not admire them? They're so dedicated. 
the last time we had a meeting, I, I said to one of the one of the people in a couple of areas that that I think you're selling your God Jehovah. I think you're selling him short. And I asked them this question: Which which father would you admire more? Would you admire a father who had somebody go die for him, or a father who died himself? And where is the love greater? To to maintain that that Christ is the special man, in some ways, derogates, it demeans the Father. Um, we believe in Christianity that the, that the Son is of the Father, that they are the same nature. What the Father would have felt. I mean, I don't, God is impassable. I, I don't believe Father, that God was crushed. He, he's a God. But, but that's a very different understanding of the nature of Christ. Arius maintained that Christ was this very special human being, that he was created in time. Milton actually has lines in the Paradise Lost that raise questions whether Milton is an Arian. Serious, serious question. Sibelius maintained that um, Christ was the Father in another mode. That it wasn't the Son, it was the Father coming down and taking on the nature of a human. So I'm just giving you two. If you look at that package, you'll find all sorts of others. Now, what does this have to do with the Eucharist? Or Not, not my intention, not my intention. What does this have to do with the Eucharist? Watch this now. The Protestant, wait, the, at the very beginning of the tradition, Christ says, this is, this is my body blood, unless you eat of me. That's a condition. Those are Christ's words. The church from the beginning, Paul says as much in Paul's letters when he talks about the Eucharist, taking the food and the body and blood of Christ. So right from the beginning, the church has always understood, from the beginning, the church has always understood that when a communicant took bread and wine, he was receiving the actual body and blood of Christ. That tradition was in effect unquestioned up until about the 11th, 11th 12th, 13th century. That's true for the Eastern Orthodox Church, all of them. Before, before the schism, so let's leave it as one church. There was one Catholic church, one universal church, East and West, even with political divisions. But the sacraments were always the same, always. If you go to an Eastern country, if you go to Serbia, Turkey, anywhere in the East, walk into a church anywhere in Serbia, Turkey, Russia, Greece, that church will be essentially the same as it was 1,500 years ago. The masses are the, virtually the same. Virtually the same. So they've been in place. That's evidence that something changed around 14th, 15th, 16th century. Because up until that time, that was the nature of the church. And at the center of it was the Eucharist. That was the most important act. All, everything that goes on in the mass leads up to it. Why? Because in that act, we participate in Christ's self-sacrificing love. And we receive his divinity. Both, because he's, he, is, he is all God, all man, not one or the other. 
Now, some of the heresies tried to make him one or the other. He was God, inhabiting a body. Not the same thing. A man not having a Godhead in him, like the Arians. So all of these bear on this notion of the Eucharist. What do we take when we take the, the body and blood of Christ? The traditional understanding of the church from the beginning is that the body and blood is the actual, real presence of Christ. Okay, now, this is, to make this even clearer, by and large, the Protestant world um, does not accept um, the real presence of Christ. They look at communion as a commemorative act. Remember me when you do this. We do it in remembrance of him. So when they take communion, they're taking a body, the, the bread and wine, but not understood as the real presence. It's commemorative. Now this is crucial to get here. The High Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church have always maintained with the Catholic Church the real presence. In the, in the large Protestant world, remember that it all derives from the Catholic world, the high, the high Catholic Protestant world, the Anglican, the Episcopal, still believe. I'm not sure where the Episcopal, I mean I can't believe the Episcopal Church is not going to change even though it's, it's changed on so many other issues, as you know. Um, so that's the way it's been. By and large, the, the Protestant world takes communion, but with a very different understanding. Okay? Luther, Calvin, the, the reformers during the 13th, 14th, 15th century, all of them, if you look at them, almost all of them to a person deny the real presence of Christ. What's happening in that time, 14th, 15th century, is a rationalizing tendency, the mind, the intellect, begins to reduce, to explain away mystery. It doesn't comport with the, with the modern scientific views that are underway in that time. Islam is outraged by it. Judaism is, as you know. And most of the Protestant reformers um, denied it. This is, this is not my opinion. This is not an opinion of mine or an interpretation. Get me out of here. This is the truth. Take me out of this. This isn't my opinion. This, this is the truth. This is historically so. The documents all read that. Just to make this a little bit clear, Luther, was, Luther believed in the real presence. He believed in it. But as you know, the, the, he, there, were, there were things in him, I don't know how else to put it, that were too ready to condemn things without wanting to go farther. I mean, the, the church needed reform badly at the time that he came, so um, the things that he was pointing at. But, but it also affected some of the other things that he did when he, when he was dealing with doctrinal matters. Luther believed, Luther believed in the real presence, but he, he changed the meaning of it. He said that what actually takes place is, can go by the name of Consubstantiation. Consubstantiation. That has to be said against transubstantiation. 
Now, what's really important to see here, if you, read, if you read John Henry Newman's The Development of Christian Doctrine, it's an amazing work. This is after his conversion, when he began to look into the history of the church and discovered that so many of the reforms that he wanted to see affected were already in existence in the church. It's one of the reasons he converted. One of the interesting things that happened, you hear people say, where did the doctrine of transubstantiation came from? It's one of these new developments in the Catholic Church and it just shows how they change things. That's not true. The, the, the idea was never formulated because like the early um, heresies, they never had to deal with it. Participating in Christ's sacrifice, eating his body, believing it, that it was Christ, was a part of the church from the very beginning. That, that's, just, that's just a fact. But when it began to be questioned, then it took a dogmatic, articulated form. St. Thomas is one of the first people to articulate it. So it, it isn't a new development. It's, it's like the councils when they had to argue against Arianism or Sabellianism or Nestorianism or modalism or whatever the doctrine was. The church reached a point where it had to answer these dangers because if they were admitted and people either denied the real presence or qualified it the way Luther did, people would be a danger because it would undo the holiness at the center of our church, Christ giving himself in his actual body and blood. Now think about that. Luther's belief was this. He, th he sees in the Eucharist an act of consubstantiation. The Catholic Church has always seen it as an act of transubstantiation. That in the blessing of the species, in the blessing of the, the, um, the bread and wine, the bread and wine is actually turned into the the real presence of Christ. So even though the, the wine and the, and the wafer take the same form, they are one. Okay? They are the body and blood. Radically, radically transformed. It's Him. When you walk by the chapel there and bow for a Catholic, um, um, you're bowing because you're acknowledging the real presence. Now hold in mind the question, I mean the question that I ask, what happens when holiness, the sacramental world, disappears? Can a culture sustain itself without that divine life of Christ? If, it, if it's just a wafer, if, we, if, if Christianity descends into a moral code, will we have the strength to follow things when it's a moral code? The, so I hope you see the difference here. Luther said, what, what takes place in the Eucharist is an act of consubstantiation. That Christ exists in the waver. It coexists with it, but it doesn't transform it. Now, I would just put this to you. Think about what the implications of that, or no, let's take three cases. The, the general Protestant world that denies the real presence. The, the, the general world that sees communion as a commemorative act. Remember, do this in remembrance of me, that you're drinking. So that what you're doing is drinking bread and wine without an, without, and not believing that it's through a presence. That's one. Two, Luther. 
you've got an act of consubstantiation, that Christ coexists in the, in the wine and bread, but it's not transformed. And the Catholic belief that that is the real presence. And by the way, this is how serious, Suzanne and I became Eucharistic ministers years ago. I mean, I, we slowly come into the church. We were already in the Catholic Church in New Hampshire when, when I went out there to take up this teaching job. And I remember talking to the priests, and, and we weren't Eucharistic ministers then, but he told us these horror stories. Uh, <laughs> love this man. Our kids loved him so much they asked him to come out here and perform the wedding when Jonathan got wedding. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the story on Steve, the priest, but um, um, he had these horror stories to tell. He told stories of his going, having to tackle a guy who tried to sneak a Eucharist out of the Mass. And he knew of people who, who, who wanted the, the wafer in order to make real a satanic Mass, yeah, where it was inverted. That happened in Oklahoma, too. Yeah, so that, the, I mean, picture this in another world. Who would do that? You don't do that with a wafer and bread. You do that be, because you understand that that's true and you want to violate it. So what's at stake is not small here. If this is the sacred actually present to us, ask what it does for us. When we eat it, when we drink it, when we take it within us, it's not just like other food. It's not commemorative. If it, I, I mean, I would love at another time to look into the implications of what are the implications for somebody believing in consubstantiality. Remember the early heresies. Somebody believed that God was inhabiting a body. What's the difference between a God inhabiting a body that he's going to leave and a God who becomes absolutely one with that body? What's the difference? No difference? What's the difference? All the difference. Say, Jeannie, say it. What? All the difference. Give, make, give, give it something concrete. They, they're totally different from each other. I know they are, but give me, what are the implications? Taking two substances and mixing them together, and all the molecules are absorbing. I'm going my science right now. I know. Or taking more oil and water. In one case, molecules are conformed. You cannot separate them. What are the wait, wait, James? A rational way of looking at it versus a faith. No, just either, either. We're right now. We're talking reason, but go ahead. James. I just yeah. say that there, if if it's inhabiting, there are two things, and they are two people, but the other way, they're combined into one. Yeah. Let me just offer this: if if Christ fully entered nature and became one with it, think about the important. This to me is extraordinary. If he becomes one with nature, he makes nature sacred. The last thing you can say about nature is that it's depraved. It's sacred. If you're, if you're angelic and you're inhabiting a body, isn't part of you wanting to get rid of that body? That's platonic. The, the body's a prison house. You're not completely one with it. It will be easier and easier to look down on the body, to degrade it, to elevate the spirit, the mind, the intellect, that's a Luciferian act to escape the body, angelic. For Christ to become one with his body, to actually become a person, meant they were absolutely perfectly united. We could no longer look at the body as something to put away. What have we been learning from the beginning? Anybody who's here with the Iliad? Hector wants to be a god. 
we talked about this. It, it, it was only when, when Achilles accepted his limits as a human being that he could do great things. What happens to us when we want to try to be somebody we're not? Or to be angelic? One of the great problems of the modern world is this refusal of our bodies. What did John Paul write? What great book? To me, that, to me, that's one of the most extraordinary books that's ever been written on our church. Theology of the Body. That was four centuries overdue. What's the typical attitude of the modern person, Protestant, secular, towards the body? Make it what you want it. If, if the, I mean, I don't know of another institution that protects the sacredness or the holiness of the body. So what we're talking about in, the, in this act of communion are very, very different theologies, very different ways of understanding Christ and his nature. In the old church. Old church meaning? Uh, Pre-Vatican II. When the priest said, do this in memory of me, and I learned this from my father, so I still do it, but you were always supposed to say, my Lord and my God, to reinforce that exact thought. That it wasn't two things, it was my Lord and my God. And that is uh, not taught anymore, but yeah. um, that, that was just part of the message. Yeah. But it, it was it was a verbal. It's under your breath, but it's it's a conscious yeah. uh, reminder that it is not two separate things. Yeah. It is the, it is a transition. See, if I were a father teaching us, I mean, my son, given our world, what I know, I would. I mean, if I were, I'd tell my kids lots of things, but um, I would say, my Lord, my God, in your body, I don't want to leave that out. Because that, to me, we're not angels. You know, St. Thomas says, St. Thomas, that we are the noblest thing in creation. We're humans. We're not angels. How many people walk around in their intellects, I've been pushing this since the beginning, living in their minds, in their heads, at the expense of their bodies? We have got this beautiful, noble thing, and we take it for granted and run it into the ground. We don't, it, oh, the temple of the Holy Spirit? Not close. We, we are Dante on the, in, the, in the Purgatorio. Remember the grotesque images in which the body was presented because people were having to do penance for the sins that they never dealt with in life. Every, every, every canto, every, every ledge showed some disfigurement because remember one of the truths there. If you look into the center of our souls away from appearances, here's this respectable looking guy talking, waving his hands. The center of our souls are these grotesque things. When if, 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 you, if you do something to excess, I mean, what do you do in purgatory? You, you go to the end and it produces all these grotesque figures. That's why I love, those of you who've been at my house, you know there are gargoyles everywhere because to me the image, I, I think one of the things missing in our world is this image of the grotesque. Remember Flannery O'Connor's de definition. The grotesque is where grace and sin meet. How can they meet and not produce these dislocations? Who of us goes to confession calm? <laughs> well, maybe I better speak for myself. I always carry a shame with me because I'm, you know, because I'm so aware of my sins. And so this whole thing of communion. That what's at issue in our faith is not small. The, the question for me is, 
If we lose a sense of the sacred in our nature, if we, if we don't see Christ as fully human and divine in one, absolutely one, in the act of communion, are we losing something of his nature? Do we participate less because we've got these wrong notions in our head? I can remember the first time we, I mean, I never, I, we never used to go to adoration. Suzanne and I go now. It's still, I'm being very honest right it's still hard for me to do. It's still a hard thing for me to do. When we came here and people bowed in front of the chapel, you know, we do now, I, I still find it hard, I'm being honest, I mean, I still find it hard. It's a little bit awkward for me to do that. I mean, I really, when, when I'm at Mass, there are times when I cannot feel, I mean, I cannot describe how deeply I feel about Christ, you know, being put away or being brought out. I've told all my children, all of our children, when they pray, I say this pretty seriously to them, when you pray, imagine Christ in front of you. Imagine, don't make this an abstraction in your head. It's a real person. Don't say, we pray to you. That's a description about what you're doing. Pray to him. You know, get those mediation, I mean, pray. Um, if we take that away, doesn't it get easier for us, particularly because of the weight of our sins? We all live under a fall. We feel the effects of our sins daily, I'm supposing. We all live under the weight of them. Take the sacred away. How easy do we find it to combat our sins, to put them away? Speaking for myself, not easy. Some of you may have an easier time of it than I do. But also realize a lot of church doesn't teach a lot of this. <laughs> you and Karen make up a sign. <laughs> no, no, go away. <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> sorry, Mark, I'm sorry, what you said? There's a lot of things the church doesn't teach anymore. They re and, and maybe it's because people don't go looking. I, my parents go to St. Anne's. And, and coming from Oklahoma, St. Anne's has like 8,000 families in it. Yeah. That's, more than the, that's more than the diocese of Oklahoma. The entire state, by the way. Okay. But I watch people walk in and they genuflect. And there's no red candle. There's no red candle. It's where the Eucharist is. That's how you know the Eucharist is in presence in the church, is the red candle. Yeah. And I didn't genuflect one day, and a man actually had the call to stop me and question me. I said, What are you genuflecting to? He didn't know. They don't, and, and a lot, they don't teach this. And I mean, I was lucky I have a very old world Catholic mother that beat it into us when we were children. But a lot of modern Catholics don't know these things. They, and, and it's not, I don't, I'm not saying it's a fault of the church or anything, but, but it's a, a lot of things that you're talking about, <clears throat> my age and younger, really don't know. Yeah, I want to I wanna call this to an end here. Let me just close on this note. The world is a different place. We live in a Protestant America. It's a Protestant world. And we live in a secular world. My, my definition of heresy a while ago, remember that with respect to the secular ends of a state, we're heretics. Um, but the world is different, and, and we live in a, a church that's um, in some ways Protestantized. I mean, I, I don't know how it could be otherwise. Um, one of the dangers, it seems to me, that all of us face, and I, I think I'm with um, 
Pope Francis on this. I, cert I personally feel closer to Benedict and John Paul, just as a person. I, I just, um, but um, Pope Francis and Father Flynn constantly are calling us out of the church to get out, you know. And they're, they're also calling us away from two extremes. And, and by the way, remember that, the, that one of the governing principles of the church, they did it with Christ, was to answer these extremes, all God, all man, one or the other, that that black-white mindset is deadly, poisonous, that what we have in Christ is um, a reconciliation and paradoxes. One of the best things, one of the reasons I love Melville is <laughs> you can't read a chapter without finding yourself drowning in paradoxes. Um, one of the dangers that we face all the time, it seems to me, is being too literal, rigorous, <coughs> I'm saying that really seriously here. Too literal and legalistic, holding people accountable to a law which puts us in a Jewish camp, or being too angelic, ethereal. I mean, go back to Dante and remember all the efforts that we talked about, the importance of bringing love and law together, that one without the other, the problems that they produce. The dangers for us is that we can get very self-righteous in holding to laws. The, the rituals, the the, what's the word of the church? The can't find the word, but the observances of the church, you know, all all that's there. We can get um, very Jewish, legalistic, and we can get very angelic. We're called to love and bring love and law together. And the greater call for us, the last command that He gave us was um, love each other as I loved you, which means unto death. So even if we're in face of enemies or things we don't like, we're still asked to love. That's, that's the central commandment of our faith. And I, I always find myself um, retreat, not retreating, but thinking. When I hear people talking about make, making faith more important than love, I, I know that's the condition of salvation. Christ says that all the way through the scripture, I know. But we also know that the greatest commandment he gave us was love, that he's asked us to do it. And just one last thought. Faith and hope um, are virtues with respect to things not yet. They're there, but the greatest commandment is love. Because it's love that roots us in our present time with eternity. That's why Paul calls it, he says, it's the greatest virtue. You know, he said, what's his line about faith without this is nothing that... Our call is to love. Um, that's our central call. So the Eucharist is really important because when we participate in that Eucharist, we believe we're taking Christ, God and man together, into our very being. And in the same way that the Eucharist was transformed, we're transformed day by day by day. We get impatient, wanting too much, too angelic, too bestial, too platonic, too legalistic, you know, that we're missing. He's called us to love. Um, and so the, the question that I raised a couple of weeks ago when I said, if a, if a culture loses touch with the sacred, the, the sacramental, the, and by that I meant the Eucharist, or, or, or the sacramental life, if a culture loses touch with the sacramental life, can it sustain itself? 
Or will the pull towards a moral code, can it hold on to itself and not descend into a moral code? It was a really serious question for me. And it seems to me it is for Melville. Because in Ishmael, we're back. In Ishmael, in Ishmael, we have a figure who's, who's, did I do it? Yes. Thank you, Tracy. There's somebody loyal in here. Um, in Ishmael, we have a person who's turning from that world and beginning to wonder again. The sacred, the marvelous, the extraordinary, the, the things that the world is beginning to pass off, he's beginning to find wonder everywhere. That's the begin. Wonder's the beginning of wisdom. Begins to take us back to being, to God. Even if God isn't there yet, that's the way to it. Remember St. Paul, we know invisible things through the things that are made. How much attention do we give to the things right in front of us to really see what's the, the logos? that's right in front of us. Okay. Let's, can we take two minutes? That, yeah, let's stop and if you're all okay with it and, and we'll, we'll turn to the book. But I want to take a breath for a minute, okay? Have a break. Huh? Have a break. <laughs> well, St. Thomas yeah. is 51 pages. Yeah. Send it to you. To you. I would love you to send it to me so I can roll my ears here. Because you said all. So just put all but St. Thomas, which is what we said. Well, I'll take it here what I think they're wanting you to, to get out and do things that are perhaps not entirely uh, Catholic. I, I think that's what Paul here is right here. You can ask him directly. What did you say about Pope Francis and Father Flynn? That they're all they're, they're encouraging us to get out of the church to, to, to go out. I think they're both encouraging us to evangelize, to get out, to not get comfortable in our church. It says we're not doing things. And you don't, you don't agree with that. You don't agree with that. None I do. Oh, very much. Yeah. But you said you like Pope Benedict and Pope I have a real partiality in both of them. I don't, dis, I, I don't, I, I don't disagree with Francis or Father Flynn at all. I, I love what Pope John to me, I just love what he did. And I, well, you, know, you, know, you, know, you know what John Paul's name, Francis Paul, his last name, Shepherd. Shepherd? Shepherd. Yeah. <laughs> I just, that's his, that's his last name. He just spoke so. Boitia is. He just spoke so directly to what I take to be the gravest of the modern ills, particularly in theology of the body. Who, who, theology of the body, when we live in a scientific Protestant world? I mean, that was, to me, the, the one of the images I had of him when, when that book came out was of Christ walking in the world. That he was responding so directly to some of the most fundamental problems of our age. Today, reading freedom from religion, Ronald Reagan's son was basically giving this deal about, you know, 
and he says, you know, the us atheists and the like. And he says, and I am not afraid of burning yeah. hell. No, I thought this was you know, who, who sponsored it? I mean, it, but it takes money to, to run these commercials and, and the like. No, this is Well, that's what it's really like. I can tell. Can we get back to Joe? Is that not what she means? How did she write it from the copy machine? Can we get that all the time? Can we all get back together? It's, just, it's, just, it's, really, it's, really, it's really bizarre. It's really bizarre. It's really bizarre. Mm -hmm. Was that all old stuff for you guys? How was it? Was that all old? You know, it's, uh, just, it's the fact that. Oh, you are. Another How long? Jewish cemetery. I just they, oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, after that, what you're not a convert. You're, you are a veteran. You are a war veteran. I don't believe what's happening. Uh, I think there's big money behind. Yeah. Can we get Can we get together? It's not you. It's the group over there at that table. It's the one that Karen's at. Yeah. It's the one that'll do it. There was confusion. What stuff was? I don't even know where to begin now. Just, <laughs> huh? <laughs> huh? It takes too much out of me. <laughs> but, uh, sure. Where does the transcendentals fit into your question? The beauty, good, goodness, and truth. Fit into the question, and I don't know if I can articulate it very well, but I am. The difference between you know, having the sacraments and, and the holy and, you know, just the moral code. What's he going to do? Where do the transcendentals fit into that? Transcendental poets. Transcendental. You're not talking about the transcendentals. You're talking about transcendentals in the sense of the good of Did everybody hear Tracy's question? Can you ask it again? Those also are made possible by the or an understanding of that. Well, let me put it this way. I mean, that's that's really a good question. A really good question. Did did the transcendentals exist before Christ came into the world? No. <laughs> what would you think? Well, just off the top of your head, what would you think? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know why. Yeah. Well, because if if wait wait here. I mean, the answer I think is pretty obviously yes. Beauty, truth, goodness, unity, the major transcendentals um, exist in the world before Christ. There was, and you go back to the ancient world, I mean, we've been talking about at the beginning that um, Homer would have seen it, beauty was present, the archetypes, truth was present, um, Achilles admitted his, it's one of the reasons he comes out of that code, that, that if you look at those ancient epics, you find people struggling for something that is 
present in a confused way or, or um, abused or used in the wrong way, like honor. Remember, we, if you go back to the Iliad and the honor code, men are using other men as objects, women for sure, I mean beauty. There's, it's so enamored. Hel Helen has the place that she does, not by accident, because she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Um, a, a war is fought over. People blow that off today. I, I mean, I don't think they should. Um, um, I've said this to my kids. Take the church away and leave men in the presence of women. Men don't have a chance, in my mind. No, I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm saying that because there is a beauty in women that, that we're naturally moved by that can be overpowering. Um, so truth, beauty, goodness, Plato's, all of his dialogues deal with particularly those universals. So they're already present. Um, I'm not sure how to answer your question here because if we go to, if we go to Moby Dick, we're not at sea. We left the world in, in which we see the existence of a failed Christianity. There's something wrong with everything that goes on there. People are not living their faith. There's hypocrisies everywhere. When we go to see, Ishmael is confronting evil in Ahab, but unlike every, any other character in the book, he is finding beauty, goodness, meaning, analogies everywhere, truth. He's struggling to find it, to put different readings against each other to help us learn to see better. So even if he's not in the presence of a sacrament, he's left that world. I mean, in one sense, you can say that at, up to this point where we've come so far in the journey, that, that um, two things are going on. One is that we, we, we were given an explicit critique of Christianity when we were in New England. It's there. Hussey, Father Mapple, Peleg, Bildad, um, Peter Coffin. There's some, the Presbyterians in their hypocrisies. There's something wrong everywhere. People are not being, they're not loving the way Christ did, to put it shortly. At sea, in a sense, that failed Christianity, the critique that we received of it in the opening chapters gets intensified at sea because Ishmael's showing us there's meaning everywhere. Who, who on land sees it? I mean, did you, it seems to me the two things that we experience when we go through these chapters is wonder and humor. There's not a chapter you read where you can't laugh with Ishmael because he's laughing at everything. He puts the scientists together and myths and, and he always comes, I mean, the, the, I can't read this. God. If, if in the last 50 years, if you look at the criticism on Melville, it's Melville's quarrel with God. That there's this dark, and, and remember in one of the chapters he talks about the central place of woe in Christianity. It's one of the major themes of the, trap, of the chapter. That Melville has looked at it's, it's this woeful, dark, Puritan, a product of a dark Puritan culture who's in this quarrel with God. I don't know how you can read those chapters and not laugh because every one of them he's being facetious. He's having fun everywhere. He's poking fun at everybody. Um, so you, you can't read those chapters without feeling that hypocritical world we've just left worse because we're seeing what they're missing. 
Don't you feel that, that you, you feel yourself coming alive in the world as you read Ishmael because everything means he takes delight in it? He finds, here, I mean, Tracy, he finds truth, beauty, goodness, and the rest of the people on board the ship? Evil, get back at this whale. I mean, part of what's going on with Ishmael is very slowly, that's where we're, we, that's where we were, we're going to go tonight, very slowly he is separating himself from that quest. He will be the one to survive to bring this world back to us. I was so proud when I, I mean, Suzanne said, I thought annotated or shortened version. Did you, Carol said the complete version. Oh, did you say it? For you to listen to the whole thing. It seems to me you can't read this stuff without laughing because he's poking fun at everybody. So, I mean, he really does have a wonderful sense of humor. So, I, we, in light of what we've just said or what I've been talking about, um, I, I want to leave this. In the sea voyage, the, the critique continues, but in a different way, because Ishmael is helping us to see things in a very different way that people on land don't see. Um, so what's the effect? Um, let's come back to it at the very, that's one of my last questions. I mean, I, the question that I asked a couple of weeks ago was when we finished the, all the land episodes, um, can a culture survive without the sacred? Because we're watching a failed Christianity, it's one of the questions that I asked you guys. When we get to the end, I want to ask it in a different way. Are we brought back? Are we any closer to the sacred? Have we returned to it? Where are we? I mean, remember, Jonah was called out to speak to the Ninevites, i.e., us. Um, and remember, this is 19th century. If America is Nineveh in the 19th century, <laughs> where is it now? Oh, God. God. Next week's prayer, I'm going to open. Please send us another Jonah. <laughs> okay, let's let's go back to Wales. Wow, God, that wore me out. The last thing to say about this study guide, um, if you got the note, you know that a, a number of you, I mean all of you have been good, nobody's been complaining, you guys are such a good group, you really are a special group, I, can't, I cannot believe you're here, week by week, I cannot. Um, that I wasn't planning on doing a study guide, I want you guys to know that we're staying up late because of you guys, just... I love that retirement. <laughs> I should know any better to get any sympathy. <laughs> what do you call late? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. Um, we've been working hard to get this study guide out. And I've been regretting it because you always get it after the reading section we're doing. This should give you a chance to get up so that the study guide you have tonight um, covers what we'll be doing next week. So for the next couple of weeks you'll have the study guide in advance. The other suggestion that I made a couple of days ago when, when Doc wrote was um, I think it would be good if all of you picked up the study guide and just went back and reread, reread it, went through it, because it would bring so much of this to mind. Um, but if it, if it takes you away from your reading because you don't have much time, forget it. Do the reading. Because Ishmael is so much, so much more fun than my study guide.
Okay, let's quick. Suzanne. Talked about. Um, I went back to Plato's Cave again briefly last week, just to remind you of something you already know too well, I think. But I, but I did it in this context. When you read Ishmael, you find yourself all over the place. Yeah, he's he's always describing something from a great variety of perspectives. One of the ways to look at that is every one of those perspectives represents a shadow in the cave. Yeah. That, he, that he's, he's showing us. Now, uh, take this really seriously. If this is Jonah, he's bringing back something these other people don't have. He's putting all these things in perspective because if you read them, they're all partial. One person sees one thing, another person sees one thing. It's not Catholic, it's not whole. It's partial. Um, what is he teaching us? To do that chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, and in a way that shows he has a sense of humor about it, shows in some ways he's disengaged from it. So it seems to me one of the ways to look at this is that he's showing us the cave in all of its multiplicity of forms, its shadows, the way of looking at things. We talked about the plot, and I suggested that after the land episodes, that the first 20 episodes or so, first 20 chapters were set up, that he was looking at different depictions of whales, different representations of whales to prepare for what's coming, and also to gain our trust. That by showing all these chapters and the variety of perspectives that he brings into them, he's teaching us to trust him. He, he, he's, he clearly, he makes us aware that he's aware of distortions. That there are these people who tell these fantastic, unbelievable stories and they fill up myths. In India, in England, in South America, there's not a country that doesn't have them. So one of the reasons he's doing that is, is to locate us in the ending. How are we going to look at the ending? There's a number of chapters where he presents a story and these people blow it off. That can't be real. And I'm, I'm assuming all of you know that if this were taught in a high school or in college even, I'm saying this really truthfully, most people would blow it off. They'd either blow it off because it's a silly, improbable story, or as a modern, they'd see it as symbolic of something else, sexual, Freudian, unconscious, political. They would transform all of that um, before they would give it credibility on its own terms. So um, what he's doing in, the, in the, the last 20 chapters, and I think in the 20 chapters we would have been doing tonight, is that he's orienting us. He's, he's showing us how much his, his quest, in contrast to Ahab's, is a quest of learning. So that even though we don't see chapters in which he explicitly separates himself, it's impossible to read these without feeling he's separating. Because Ahab pays attention to nothing. He's got his mind fixed on one thing only. Ishmael is open to everything. There's nothing that he doesn't turn his mind on. One critic said of Jane Austen once that nothing escapes her. I love that because I think there are a couple of things. But 
I think we can say that of Ishmael. Nothing escapes him. He, he, he gives himself to everything. So we talked about Ishmael as a learner, and we talked about Ishmael as a teacher. That in his reading, he's teaching us, in his chapters, he's teaching us to read better. To not be so narrow-minded one way or another, to open our minds, to see what's in front of us, that's logos, that's everywhere. There's this, these, what we talked about as analogies of being, the analogous relationships. Who, who, who looks at the world that way today? We don't. Um, so he's teaching us to read, um, and he's, he, he's showing us that, I, I think if we use Plato's cave, I'm not sure that it's the best thing, but if you're eclectic, if you're bringing all sorts of things together, it makes it possible for you to stand outside of them, a little bit more easy to stand outside of them, to not be drawn into just a, a partial view of things. Um, I mentioned that in the Grand Armada, which I think we read, that um, Ishmael, I mean, the Pequod was passing from the Western world, you know, and it left the Indian Ocean and went into the Java Straits. It was heading up to the um, China Seas and then into the Atlantic. That's, that's when they were attacked by Pacific. pirates. Sorry? Huh? Pacific. Pacific, yeah. Into the, did I say Atlantic? Into the Pacific. They are attacked by pirates first time. We're in alien country. We're, we're, we're removed from the West. We have left the civilization of rationality and law. We're entering more deeply into mysteries and we're heading towards Fadala's country, the Orient. The mystery rites, the, 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 the world that doesn't know, that hasn't been influenced, shaped as much by Christianity. Um, and I, I think I read that, that, that the end of that one chapter, didn't I, where it's the um, Sphinx chapter, where Ahab is looking at the whale, and then at the very end, there's the description of um, um, Fadala occupying Ahab's shadow. Didn't we look at that? Yeah. And I, I suggest that that's a way of showing that that spiritual evil is interpenetrated, that it's just one more way Ishmael has of, of dealing with intangible realities because that's what he's been dealing with so often. Remember I said one of the things he's doing is using reason to penetrate intangible things. The things that have to do with missing. Because the materialism that we take as a part of our culture that defines it today was already present then. People were, people were already becoming so materialistic that they could not see things beyond the material world. That's the nature of our culture. Um, and the GAMs. Now take a look. I don't want to do this tonight, but just take a look. Um, take a look at the GAM sheet I gave you. I've described them on the one page. I'm not going to go through them, but, but I wanted you to just have this thought in your mind. If you look at the, at the first page, remember when we did the Iliad? At the very end of our work on the Iliad, I lined up all the battles and then put them on a circle to, to, to illustrate that what to me is one of the central truths that the battles increase in importance as we move through the work. The, the, the more important figures die off, they're killed in more important battles until we get to the final battle with Achilles um, fighting Hector. And remember I suggested that at the center of that circle is this notion of honor that men are fighting, they're giving their lives, 
for, for a question of honor, for a matter of honor, but it's really clear if you look at it that there's something wrong with their honor code. They're all in for money, for booty, for, fam for um, armor, family, um, all of those things. Um, at the very end, Achilles and Hector fight only after Achilles has admitted his fault and then returns to battle. And by that time, Hector is wearing Patroclus's armor, which he got from Achilles. So Achilles is looking at somebody trying to be like him. And remember those lines when, it, when Hector's at the wall, he says, oh, what they're going to say about me now. Hector's concern was far more with what people would have thought of him than with any real integrity himself. So if we look at that circle, we've got all these various views about honor, and there's something imperfect in all of them. They all share in it, they participate in it, but in different degrees. And what Melville is, I mean, this is interesting, what Melville's doing here is, is something along the same lines. If we look at all the GAMs, we're going to find, remember, every one of these GAMs is a business enterprise, right? Each one of them is a, is a, is a company. They're all out for profit. This is America. Every one of those ships is, is an economic enterprise. They're at sea. They've been away from home. And each one of them has experienced something about whaling and maybe even Moby Dick in a different way. So we're learning different aspects of this mystery, what's at the center of this world that we're all engaged in. When we come to the doubloon chapter at the end, I think it's 104, I can't remember. You have it, Doc, do you have the, I think it's 104, the doubloon chapter. Here, I'll get it, it's in the, um, the doubloon is chapter 99. Yeah. In, in the doubloon chapter, um, a handful of men, Ahab, Starbuck, and some of the others, will approach the mast and look at the doubloon. The doubloon has three mountains on it with different things coming out of each one of them, and a sun in the, in the zodiac, in the sky. And every one of them reads it, and what's interesting is every one of them comes away with a different interpretation of the work. So just think about this. The Gams all give us different perspectives on Moby Dick. When, they come, when you come to the doubloon chapter, you're going to see every one of those characters reads the doubloon, interprets it in a different way. Does that mean there's no objective truth? Is truth relative? Truth, one of the transcendentals. Is truth relative? Is it, is it what we make it? Is it peculiar to us? Because each one is going to get back an image of himself, something that's peculiar to him. So once again, we return to this question of reading. And remember, it's been, at least as I've been presenting the work, it's, it, it is probably the essential theme, the, the intuition that's at the center of this work. How do people read reality? You've got two different views colliding with each other, scientific and religion, but you've got Ahab looking at this whale in a certain way, in such a way that he wants to destroy it. He reads it a certain way, it means something to him. And given that meaning, it shapes his behavior. 
So this question about what we read and how it affects us is not small. It's at the center of this work. If we believe in certain things, it's going to affect. That's why this whole thing about communion is something I took time with, because it seems to me it's absolutely essential. If we misread this, it affects us. If we make the truth what we want, what effect will that have on us? So in two major motifs of this book, the gams and the doubloon, Melville is holding up this question of reading right up to us explicitly, okay? Um, we looked at the monkey rope episode, right? And we looked at the Grand Armada last week. No. Really? The Grand Armada we looked at, yeah? Yes, okay. Just for one minute before we finish, because we didn't get into the turn to the monkey rope on page, chapter 72, page 382. We didn't, well, let's just take a minute cause so we get into the book before we leave tonight. 382. It's a typical practice on board whaling ships. Oh, by the way, these are two books, sorry, I forgot. These are two books that were on the list one of them, they're both by Hilaire Belloc, The Greatest Heresies and Crisis in Civilization. Both of them are really fine books. They have to do with the crisis that we're in. And if anybody, if anyone wants to look at these, they're, they're included on the list, but they're here. In this chapter, Ishmael is describing um, the activity of cutting out the whale. To do it, men are paired up and they're tied together with a monkey rope. Ishmael is on deck with the rope around him and Queequeg is in the whale cutting out the whale. And um, Tashtigo and Dagu are on the, on the deck using their spades to cut the sharks, to keep the sharks out of the way because they want to protect Queequeg's life. And, and Ishmael comments on it ironically that they almost take Queequeg's life and it's a, he says it's a perilous business. <laughs> But then he has this line um, on page 382. He says in the middle of the page, accordingly, besides the monkey rope with which I now then jerked the poor fellow from too close a vicinity to the maw of what seemed a peculiarly ferocious shark, he was provided with still another protection. Suspended over the side of one of the stages, Tashtigo and Dagu continually flourished over his head a couple of keen whale spades wherewith they slaughtered as many sharks as they could reach. This procedure of theirs, to be sure, was very disinterested and benevolent of them. They meant Queequeg best happiness, I admit, but in their hasty zeal to befriend him and from a circumstance that both he and the sharks were at times half hidden by the blood muddy water, those indiscreet spades of theirs would come nearer amputating a leg than a tail. But poor Queequeg, I suppose, straining and gasping there with that great iron book, poor Queequeg, I suppose, only prayed to his yojo. Yo and gave up his life into the hands of his God. How could, I mean, he, his humor just doesn't stop. He does not face it. Remember that in the Grand Armada that I read last week. Remember, the whale, remember, they're in the center of the Armada. The mothers are looking up at them with the, ba the baby whales. The baby whales are frisking. There is this nurturing, this feminine instinct at the center of this whale um, herd. And then into it comes this whale that's harpooned, thrashing with lines. It's the effect of man's actions 
that interrupts it, right? Because they, they harpooned it, but it got away. And the lines from that entangle the umbilical cord and with, with spades on it, knives, cutting. So into this comes all this havoc, and yet there's that description of Ishmael saying, and yet in spite of this, I felt in the center of my being this calm and this joy. So we know that no matter what's going on, that there is a possibility for peace, however bad things get. Here, on page 381, Ishmael is reflecting on this monkey rope ordeal, and he says this, So strongly and metaphysically did I conceive of my situation, and that while earnestly watching his motions, I seemed distinctly to perceive that my own individuality was now merged in a joint stock company of two. <laughs> Can you not love his irony? God is that my free will had received a mortal wound and that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. Therefore I saw that here was a sort of interregnum in providence, for its even-handed equity never could have sanctioned so gross an injustice. Interregnum means a breach, a break in providence. And yet still further pondering, while I jerked him now and then from between the whale and the ship, which would threaten to jam him, still further pondering, I say, I saw that this situation of mine was the precise situation of every mortal that breathes, only in most cases he, one way or another, has this Siamese connection with the plurality of other mortals. Here's that tendency to make analogy. He takes the situation that he and Quiquigrin and says, we're all in this situation. Now, think about that, because most people in America grew up believing that we're all isolated, that we live as isolated, autonomous, that we have our way, do what we want. Here he's saying that all of us in some way or another are connected and dependent on each other. And his first response is that that's an awful injustice, that he should depend on Queequeg. And remember what Ishmael said about Queequeg in the beginning. Queequeg told him very clearly he would be willing to risk his life for him. Um, Ishmael's learning. Did I tell you the airplane? I think I told you the airplane story about myself, didn't I? When I was reading Melville, when I was a little bit younger, and the, some, something came up that required traveling, and I, I was facing the option of either driving or flying, and I never flew. It wasn't so much a fear of flying as it was a pride that I wanted to control my own destiny. Didn't I tell you this? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I just didn't. If, if I was going to die, I wanted to do it because I wanted to have control over it. And one of the ways it came to me was the thought that if God wanted somebody in that airplane, why should I have to go down with that airplane? Because he wanted somebody else. I mean, this is this so goes to this that this is predicament that we're all in. And then one day I read this monkey rope episode, and I realized, what if the one that he wanted in that plane was me, and everybody else had to go down? <laughs> this episode sort of turned my life on its head the first time I read it. Ishmael's learning. He's learning to see the interconnectedness between things and how interconnected we are with each other. Um, and it seems to me what he faces here is his pride in thinking that's, that it's unfair that Queequeg should go down and he'd have to go down with him. Um, okay, I, I promise next week to stick to the whale story. <laughs> Bob, just a Yes. Steady guy tonight. Did you get a steady there's a study guide for last section, and there's a study study guide tonight for the next twenty. For six. Okay. Let's. What number is it, or what chapter?
Interesting, Bob, is of you know the uh, the relationship of you know, what you're saying in terms of human, human nature. In terms of blaming, say it again. Blaming what? Blaming life 